Hello and welcome to the Tavern Chat Podcast. I am your host, Eric Tenkar, and this is another in our series of designer and makers fireside chats. Uh, this time we have uh, Alex McCree, uh, the main man behind Autark. If you've uh, ever played Adventure Conqueror King System, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Alex, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to hit you with a few uh, questions that I ask of everybody. Okay, I'm ready. And, all right. Uh, tell us about your first RPG experience. My first RPG experience was the Dungeons and Dragons coloring book by Gary Gygax. Um, I had an older brother who was nine years older than me. And uh, he was a teenager at the moment when Dungeon Dragons hit its stratospheric popularity in the very early 80s, you know, when, when they were playing Dungeon Dragons during the E.T. movie, et cetera. And so he got very into it and he thought I would like it. And he bought me, I was maybe six years old at that point, bought me the Dungeon Dragons coloring book. And I thought that was amazing and played it. And um, shortly thereafter, uh, I started um, playing with my uh, with my brother, and my very first character was a thief with strength of seven who died to uh, a white dragon. So there you go. That is uh, par for the course, I think, for a lot of those early sessions. Uh, it's why we see the OSR doesn't worry about game balance, right? That's right. You, you learn from an early age that uh, discretion is a better part of valor. Uh, actually, I have historically died in every campaign I've ever played in. I have never had a character survive. Um, so, in fact, I would say I have still not learned that discretion is the better part of Valor. Um, at this point, it's it's an ongoing joke as to how I will gloriously die in each campaign. Well, all right. So long as it's a glorious death. I, it, it usually is. I, I, I usually avoid going out like a chump, but I, I definitely die. <laughs> nice. All righty. Uh, what is your, and again, I, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but what is your go-to RPG system and why? Well, nowadays it's Adventure Conquer King system. Um, prior to creating Axe, um, I would say my two favorite games were um, classic Dungeons & Dragons. So that is the um, Moldvay Cook Menser versions of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, okay. And then Artalsorian Cyberpunk 2020. Uh, is another one of my long-standing favorites. Um, and then, you know, a series of other peripheral games. But I would say I would say 50% of all campaigns I've ever run in my life have been within that that space. Well, that's, uh, I, I still have the uh, Cyberpunk 2020 on my uh, bookshelf. Never got a chance to run it. My, my group it was a bit too uh, off the mainstream of... D&D or Traveler or, all right, Rifts. It, yep. it was, yeah, it was a bit more, and, and none of my friends were uh, uh, reading any of the, uh, the cyber fiction at that time, the, the cyber science. Everybody was mostly reading fantasy. So it's, even Traveler was a hard, hard sell at points for me. So I'm, sure, I'm impressed. Sure. I was fortunate because I had uh, I, I grew up in a town that was very gun friendly. So a lot of ever a lot of folks there were hunters or gun owners, 
and they were really into firearms. And Cyberpunk was very much kind of a firearms porn type game. And um, so uh, I think that initially attracted a lot of attention for it. And, you know, the players used to just sit there and salivate over, you know, you know 11 millimeter smart gun with extended magazine clip firing dual purpose armor piercing hollow point flechette ammunition you know you're just like okay okay yeah. <laughs> that's like the equivalent of a plus five holy avenger to those guys oh damn all right yeah i, uh, I was playing in new york city at the time uh, there was no gun ownership there still isn't all right race is class yay or nay uh, I think that uh, race and class should be integrated, um, but I don't think it necessarily needs to be that each race is only one class. So I don't like the mix and match of race with class because I think it tends to feed into a notion that if you want to play X class, you should be Y race. And if you don't do that, you know, obviously you don't know how to play the game or you're, you know, you, you don't know how to max out your character, you know, and it's, it's, it's this very sort of 3.5 mentality. Um, that said, you know, I also have sympathy for the players who say, well, you know, I don't want my elf to be an elven, you know, fighter magic user. I'd like to be an elven enchanter, which is also a mythic archetype. And why can't I be that? So what I did in Axe is for each race, I created a series of character classes that I thought represented the archetypes of that race. So for instance, for dwarves, you have the dwarven delver, you have the dwarven vault guard, you have the dwarven machinist, you have the dwarven craft priest, and you have the dwarven fury, which are respectively, um, you know, a, a, an explorer slash thief type character, a fighter type character, a cleric type character, um, a berserker, and a, um, uh, and a character who creates automatons and machinery. And, you know, it's totally distinct from if you play an elf where your choices are, Elven Enchanter, Elven Courtier, Elven Nightblade, Elven Spellsword, Elven Ranger. Um, and so, you know, they also have a fighterish option, a spellcasterish option, et cetera, et cetera, but it's a totally different set of options. Um, it, it does create a little bit more page count because you have to have more classes, but I think right. the overall outcome is a lot better. Well, I, I totally agree. And when I came back to uh, DMing after many years away from it, and this is after I we did a play test. I didn't, yeah, thank God, of D and D next at the time. Uh, I came back, and the, the first two campaign arcs I ran, I, I ran one using AD and D one E, which is what I was comfortable with, and uh, and they an Osric at the same time. And once I finished that, and once I got a chance to read through Axe. I ran Axe because I liked the way you handled the classes and I liked the way you handled uh, uh, character. I don't want to say character death because it doesn't necessarily mean character death in Axe, but certainly char character defeat on the battlefield. And uh, we'll probably touch on that later. But yeah. Right. The, the, the mortal wounds and the tampering with mortality tables. Sure. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll definitely touch on that. Next did question. you use the uh, proficiency system when you played Axe in your campaign? Uh, we did, but most of my players just kind of forgot they had them. Right, it, right. It, you know, and, and that's because I think even when we played back in the day, the uh, AD&D 2E, where they brought in the non-weapon proficiencies, 
for the most part, we ignored them because we never were used to using them. I think now, if I ran Axe, my, with, you know, a regular group, I think that the proficiencies would get used more because I would probably set situations up that the proficiencies would come into play. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, you know, one of the things we did was create the, the so-called adventuring proficiency, um, which, you know, every adventurer gets and which covers all of the routine tasks that were, um, uh, that had rules in basic and expert D&D. So you could essentially ignore the proficiencies and just worry about the fact that everyone's an adventurer and, and you can just adventure. Um, or if you wanted to really delve deep, you can be like, well, in addition to being an adventurer, my character knows how to craft beer and brew potions or whatever. Yeah, I like to say, if, if I mean, this was me coming, you know, my first GMing, God, probably like 12 years at that point. I I never fully left the hobby, but I certainly was like in hibernation. I, I hadn't had a chance to play because work hours and my initial group, when, when I... When I was no longer available to GM back in March of 97, uh, we just stopped gaming and a lot of it moved on to MMOs. We played EverQuest and stuff like that to keep the group together, but it wasn't the same. But once I found virtual tabletops, then things fell back into place. And, uh, but I enjoy running games. I enjoy playing them, too. See, I'm I'm disappointed to hear this. I had this notion that you were secretly running a a D and D group, you know, out of the police station with like hardened cops who were investigating dungeons like they were crime scenes. All right, I I, I will give you a short story on that one. Uh, shortly before I retired, uh, I I was a a sergeant. I was working midnight. I was covering the desk for a bunch of investigators, and uh, my lieutenant. Was going. He was talking to me, and he'd. I, I had brought in. I, I forget. It was probably the source of his rules one day to to read at night. I mean, it's the midnight. It gets slow. And he's like, uh, you know, what is that the Dungeons and Dragons stuff. I'm like, yeah. He goes, you play that? I go, yeah. He goes, yeah. I hear you got a blog too. I'm like, yeah, huh? He goes, we're, 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 you know, what's the website? I'm like, I'm not telling you. He goes, what? I go, Dude, I'm not telling you. I keep my work, my work life, and my social media life separate. There's work reasons for that, but you know, I felt the safest. I come back. I swing out for uh, two days. I come back and I get to my mailbox in the in our office area, and there is the dwarven face that I use for my 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 Facebook image, printed out full color. Pasted, not even tape, pasted <laughs> onto my mailbox. So I see my lieutenant. He goes, Ten car. I'm like, oh. Yeah, Lou. He goes, Man, you weren't easy to find. He goes, I had to jump through hoops to figure out your, where your social media was. I'm like, Well, I, at least I know I, I hit it well enough for that. He goes, So uh, would you be willing to like you know run games? And I go, Excuse me. He goes, You know, uh, we can get a couple of guys, get them on their uh, meal break, and uh, maybe uh, tack on their personals, and we can get like an hour and a half together, maybe twice a week. Would you run it? I'm like, uh, yeah, all right, sure. And Matt Finch was going to actually send some sort of misery rule books for me to distribute, and my lieutenant got transferred. 
And the new lieutenant coming in had no uh, sense of humor whatsoever. So now, that that's that's where it ended, but came very close to that one, very close. And I had a couple of detectives that were interested. So, that close. Yeah, that would have been really fun. The um, the funniest experience I had like that is um, when I was working for Defy Media and traveling back and forth to LA all the time. Um, you know, I was spending half my week in airplanes. And, um, you know, one day I got, I got in my seat and uh, I, you know, glanced around to see who my fellow passengers were. And, um, you know, across the aisle from me was this, you know, mid 40s uh, guy in a business suit with like, you know, chief executive officer hair, really expensive mm. laptop. And I looked at what was on his laptop screen and it was a copy of Axe. Oh my, my God. Jaw just drops. And so I <laughs> leaned over and I was like, Excuse me, sir. Are you looking at Adventure Conquer King System by Alexander McCreese? And he like looks at me like, you know, turns bright red and he's like, uh-huh. uh, yes, why? And I'm like, well, because I'm Alexander McCreese. <laughs> and so we just like start chatting it up. And it turns out the guy is a senior partner at McKinsey Consulting. And he has like a gaming group of his McKinsey partners. And they play Axe because they're like, it's the only RPG that really understands economics. Like, if you care about economics, you have to play Axe. Yeah. And I'm like, this is amazing. I found my niche, McKinsey Consultants. That, that is awesome. See, now, my playing experience was uh, my first GaryCon. And I, I went, it was last moment, Frog Guy Games. They reached out to me and said, listen, if you can get out here, we got a hotel room for you. We want you to help work the table. I was like, all right. So... That's fine. Had a great time at the con. Uh, flying back, there's a problem. My plane gets delayed, I don't know, two hours, but then I get booked on a prior plane going to New York that was delayed an hour and 45. So suddenly I'm flying earlier than I was going to prior. And I sit down next to a, a young woman. And I, you know, because that's the seat they give me now. And I'm like, okay. And she turns at me and she goes, I saw you at GaryCon. I'm like, oh, my God. I know that. She goes, yeah. She goes, um, you know, what, what, do, what do you do? I go, well, I wrote Swords and Wizardry Light, the four pages. And I didn't have it in my bag under my feet. It was now in the bag in the overhead. And she's like, no, you didn't. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm, I wrote 10 cards. She goes, no, you're not. I go, I go, wait a minute, I'm not. She goes, I have this, because I, I, I bought Frog Guy game stuff. I just, you're not Eric Tenkar. I go, listen, Tenkar's Tavern, the blog, that's me. She goes, mm, yeah, show me some ID. Well, I go, listen, I, the, the, the name I use, because I was a cop, it, it, it's not going to match. So I go, but listen, when we get off the plane, uh, if you want cop, because she had a gaming group that ran out of a game store. I go, if you want copies of Swords of Wizardry Light, I'm coming home with about 40 copies. I, I can give you like a dozen. Mm-hmm. We, we talked now just about the con. So uh, she bought a lot of shit at the con. She had to wait for like a trunk of gaming books to come out from below. And, and so I was like, Jesus. So I, I step out and I grab twelve copies and I come back and and she looks at it. She looks at it, looks at me. And she goes, "Holy shit, you were telling the truth." I'm like, "Who's gonna lie about this? <laughs> Who else but me would want to be me?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh man!" And then she gave me a hug and a 
peck on her cheek. It was very, it was very sweet. And I saw her the following year at at, at uh, Gary Con. She brought her husband over to introduce me to her husband. But uh, I was just like, I, 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 I can. Who really? Who else but you is going to admit? That, first off, that you're a gamer. Uh, in a public space, it's almost like, oh my god. But yeah, uh, I'm not claiming that, that I wrote anything all that great. It's a four-page game I wrote, but yes, I wrote it, and you can have copies. But she didn't. I said she didn't believe it until I actually handed her the copies, and then she realized, oh my god. So yeah, I, I can relate. But that you finding businessmen that actually game—that's awesome, man. It was it was pretty unexpected. Um, you know, I had been fortunate because my my prior career was in the video game industry, and um, tabletop gamers grow on trees in the video game industry. So it was always really easy to get a big group. Like you know, we regularly had groups of eight to twelve people for a decade. Um, but then uh, when I shifted over into the media industry, you know, the groups became a little scarcer. Um, although fortunately, we you know we were able to. I was able to get a group uh, in in Los Angeles. So I had a group in LA and a group in um, in Raleigh, and I was shuttling back and forth between the two, running for both. It was pretty wild. Damn, pretty nice. All right, we'll move on to our next question, and uh, we're almost we're almost at the sandbox part. Uh, where do you stand on save or die? Um, well, personally, I. I I try not to die. Um, do you mean do I do I think that you should be the able mechanic. to die instantly? Yeah, the mechanic. I, I, I've heard arguments both ways. Mo actually, not even there's multiple ways to argue this, but I I'd like to to see where you basically stand. All right, sure. So my personal belief is that um, the risk of permanently dying in an RPG. Uh, without your consent is an essential part of the game. Um, I think that what makes the RPG as a pastime superior relative to other pastimes is the agency of the player. Uh, you can play an MMO and enjoy gameplay. You can read a book and enjoy a story. But there's only one genre of game that affords you absolute agency to do whatever you can think of and have that resolved. But for agency to um, be real, two things have to be the case. One, uh, causality has to follow laws that you can understand. The same action uh, repeated uh, in the exact same circumstances should be resolved in the same way, fairly. Um, and two, uh, the consequences of your choices have to actually matter. And I think when you take that into account, you understand why railroading is bad, you understand why fudging is bad, and you understand why save versus die can be good. Now, it isn't always good because it's possible to do save versus die in ways that remove player agency. Um, but I think when uh, I see absolutely nothing wrong with the circumstance where something is self-evidently trapped, you choose to risk the trap because you want the reward, and the risk goes against you and you suffer the consequences. To me, that's the very essence of an RPG. Make choices, face consequences. Yeah, I, and I like the way you put it, is that you know there's a risk and you take the risk. It's, I, I, my issue with save or die has always been the, uh, you don't know there's a risk and all of a sudden you're being told, yeah, roll a d20. Why don't you roll? Seven? Yes. Yeah, you're, you're dead. All right, so uh, and let's move on. That, to me has always felt really, really shitty. 
Uh, right, right. I mean, because there's no there's no uh, choice involved if you don't know what the um, potential consequences are, uh, even on a probabilistic level. At that point, you know, your 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 choice is actually an illusion, and you're flipping a coin. Door number one, door door number two. Um, it would be no different than saying, well, at the start of every session, roll percentile dice, and then oh one, your character dies of a heart attack from the stress. Like, uh, okay, I mean, sure, that happens in real life, but that doesn't create any agency in the game. No. So. No. No. All right. Uh, that's you. You you worded that uh, very well. I I like the way you placed that. I'm actually. Uh, I'll mention while while we're doing this. I'm I'm in the middle of publishing a book called Arbiter of Worlds, which is my theory of game mastering, where I go into all of this in great detail. So. When I uh, when I get that released, I'll certainly let you know. And I think I think folks within the old school community will really like it. And I think folks within the story game community will um, declare me an apostate and a pariah and send out death squads from Venezuela. Uh oh, heretic! You're a heretic. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's essentially it's uh, the book is kind of a almost a semi rebuttal of the entire notion of story games and 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 a and a defense of classic sandbox old school game mastering. Hmm. All right, I'm looking forward to this. What's the ETA approximately on this one? Book's written, so it's just in layout. So I figure probably next month it'll be out. All right. Well, as I've told others, make sure you ping me when it comes out because I definitely want to post about it. And I definitely Absolutely. want to grab a copy. All right. Absolutely. Last question before we do our hex crawl. What would the teenage you think if they could see what you would have accomplished in a hobby at this point in your life? Well, the teenage me was kind of an arrogant jackass, so he would be very disappointed in me. Um, I distinctly remember the teenage me thinking that, um, you know, that I, I wanted to be able to look myself up in the Encyclopedia Britannica and, and see how important I was. And, um, and I was gravely disappointed to, to discover as an adult that A, no one looks up shit in the Encyclopedia Britannica anymore. Nope. And B, I didn't even make it to Wikipedia. So, um, so I guess all I can really do is look back at my at my teenage self and say I'm really sorry for squandering my gifts, and um, you know, hopefully in the next life I'll be a warlord or something more impressive. <laughs> I have not made it to Wikipedia, although a link from Ten Cars Tavern did make it in, think into the Serenity RPG listing. So, oh, very nice, very nice. So yeah, so I mean, all right. So I guess if you blog for nine and a half, nearly ten years you might actually land some peripheral way in Wikipedia. Ha! Huh. I mean, heck, man, I won six Webby Awards with The Escapist and uh, have no uh, no Wikipedia entry, so. Really? Think... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have a whole, whole ton of uh, interesting stuff I did in my in my prior life. But, um, you know, there, there's, there, there's, you know, various ins and outs of why one gets uh, on Wikipedia, and, and frankly, I'm I'm probably better off not being on there at this point. Yeah, I love that. that I think that goes for a lot of us. Wikipedia, listen, they all just just oh, God forbid I'm going to get into this conversation as we hit the sandbox. Um, it, it's it's just like the Ennies. The Ennies, the Ennies are self-selecting anyway because you have to submit your own product. In some cases, mail it worldwide just to be considered for an any, which really means that it's not judging the best, 
it's the best of the people who could afford to send stuff worldwide. And then you right. still have, and then, and then you still have to uh, meet the uh, social media approval of judges who may not judge the product, but may judge the publisher, good or bad. You know, with, you know, I think like a lot of the the Paizo stuff. I'm not saying it's 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 poor. It's well done, but I think a lot of the Paizo stuff and historically a lot of the Witches of the Coast stuff gets pushed through because you know, look who's submitting it. You know, whereas some third party publisher or some indie publisher might put out something that's really great, they're not going to be able to have even the social connections to get themselves. Uh, to the final five, just so people can vote on them. So yeah, that yeah, abso- I, I I absolutely agree. Um, the, you know, and I, but I mean, that's just I think the nature now of our highly interconnected social society, where um, everything everything is in part a popularity contest, um, and and in part a first mover contest. Um, there was a really fascinating uh, study I read um, a paper about where uh, some scientists created a social network with music on it, and they put they put the music from a variety of musicians. And before they released the social network, they had experts in the field rate the songs and give them reviews as to which were the very best songs, which were moderate, and which were not very good songs. And um, and then they released the social media site and they had the users review the songs. Um, and initially, the users couldn't see other users' reviews. And they found that the user reviews closely matched expert opinion in terms of which were the best and which were the worst. They then, as the, as the uh, control, they then did a version of the social network. Um, same exact situation, but now you could see what other songs had been listened to most and what other ratings were. And they found that you then had all of a sudden this massive effect of the first mover. Like if the first guy to visit the site happened to like jazz a little bit more than rock, then all of a sudden, you know, this, this uh, exponentially would end up with jazz songs being much more highly rated than they had been in the prior system. Like there's a, a first follower effect. It was really fascinating. And um, it really made me realize just how important those viral networks are to succeeding in any type of marketing. Yeah, I mean, it, that is very interesting. And it also shows that it's the initial input that almost matters most, right? If, if, if you're going right. to do so, it, it's it, if you did it blind, people are voting with their own mind, their own hearts. But once it is now, well, uh, John Smith likes this, yep. so it, it should be good. I, I got to go along with uh, John John Smith on this one. Yep. Of course, I'm, yep. I'm, I think when I think John Smith. Now I'm, I'm thinking Man in a High Castle, and I don't know if that's John Smith you actually want to vote with. But in any case, yeah, no, I think I think that's just right. And and what they found is that sort of across three tiers of quality, of high quality, medium quality, is that um, the the network effect could cause. Uh, a medium quality product to do better than any high quality product and a high quality product to do as bad as a medium quality product. What the effect couldn't do is it couldn't turn, it couldn't turn shit into gold, okay. um, but it could turn, it could turn bronze into gold and gold into bronze. Which is very interesting. Right. So, it, so it's almost like 
like North North Texas, they have an award, the Three Castles Award, and it isn't a popularity contest. Now, it has four to five judges, and there are submissions from uh, publishers, third-party publishers. Uh, it's, all, it's all OSR stuff. And these judges then all vote on each individual item, and then the number one, there's only one winner, it gets the yearly trophy. Now, that takes the popularity contest and it takes the um, the me first vote, trend-setting vote, out of it. But it does mean that well, all you need is one out of four to hate your fucking guts to tank an otherwise good product. I'm not saying that's what has ever happened. I'm just saying, theoretically, it could happen. So there's pros and cons to both, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um... Uh, I mean, I, I, I've, I've done... You can tell talk with like Vince on this. I, I mean, Vince had talked about Vince Floria talked about this years ago, and I talked about this with uh, James Bond and even uh, Wenger Santanis. I don't know, a year and a year and a half ago, about how we <laughs> could, yeah, but how we could find a way to get an industry award geared toward the OSR. But have it be something that wasn't a popularity contest and yet wasn't subject to personal whims when it comes to uh, making those picking picking to quote the winners. And it's it, it's it's I'm not saying it's impossible, but it sure fucking seems like it. I mean, it just yeah, I think it's very tough um, to to accomplish. Uh, you know, probably the closest you can get is when you have, um, you know, kind of a, a highly respected jury that's able to deliberate in secret. And, um, at, you know, that will at least give you um, high quality, you know, something something the way, uh, something similar to how the Nobel Prizes are issued. And, um, you know, they, they do a pretty good job um, uh, you know, keeping themselves immunized from too much, uh, too much campaigning. But, you know, you do get, you know, you do get institutional biases then, right? Like particular judges that favor, like if you stacked your judges with OSR fans, no story games are going to win, et cetera. Right. And as I said, when we were talking about, you know, uh, an award system that would be OSR focused, because right. that's, that's where, you know, the people I spoke with and then where I hang my hat and, we often see things like N World and the Ennies, which is it literally a, it's a popularity contest once you get down to those last five, and it's who can mobilize their social media the most um, for a lot of it. James Raggy apparently has figured out the uh, way to uh, make the system work for him. God bless, but it, it's hard for others to achieve such, and then. When when you can't trust the system, it kind of makes the actual award seem less valuable. At least in my eyes, as a, as as a consumer, um, I'm sure as a publisher, getting gold or getting silver is is awesome. But as a consumer, I look at it less because I, I've seen how a lot of these votes have gone, and I scratch my head and wonder why. We know what's what's interesting 
there's a second paper um, that kind of builds on the first I, I shared with you. Um, and it, it follows logically from the, from the, the prior one. But if you um, if you consider that for any given set of products or talents or people, that the number of um, very top quality X is always much less than the number of average X. And then when you realize that you know there's these random network effects that can cause average to outperform the very best, um, they actually this paper mathematically shows that in fact. Um, you know, the most popular, the best selling, um, the, uh, you know, most well rewarded, the most sales, et cetera, is mathematically exceptionally unlikely to be the highest quality product simply because the highest quality is so rare that the chance of it being the one that benefits from the network effects is, um, is just exceptionally unlikely. So the odds are that the winners are probably, you know, pretty good but not necessarily the best of the best, just because the best of the best ends up so rare. It's, it's, it's really fascinating math. That is, that is really interesting to tell you the truth. That, that, and it makes sense, though. It, it really does. And uh, social networking, the, the influencer that influences others is very important. Uh, if you can get if, if you can get an influencer to go along with what you're trying to sell, you've guaranteed yourself sales. That's right. That's right. So, um, yeah, I wish uh, I wish I had been able to turn this theoretical knowledge into some sort of uh, systematic marketing mastery. Um, but uh, you know, obviously, practitioners like um, Ragi and Zach have uh, far outperformed me in that regard. So well, uh, I can, I, I, but I, I, I certainly admire their, uh, I admire their, their marketing acumen very much. Well, you know, J James has Finland's money, uh, which got him started. You know, he got a free business loan or, or, or grant, which was great. And, uh, and Raggy's had some pretty, you know, he's, he's doing, Raggy takes chances and he's done mm -hmm. things that I, I've told him when he asked my opinion, I've said this before, I told him it was, pretty much fucking retarded to run 12 concurrent Kickstarters because your your children are going to eat their own when it comes to the, the money you're going to take in and you'll be lucky to see two or three funds. And I think four funded maybe when you did that. Um, we, we don't we don't talk anymore after that, but um, he has learned, he learned... He's somebody who will learn from his mistakes. He might not admit to them, but he certainly will... Uh, learn from them and you know he puts out high quality visually appealing uh products that for the most part i i can't use in a campaign because they're total party fucks but they are generally a good read and they are eye-pleasing just unusable did i say that yeah i i think there's there's a whole market uh if we're if we're being honest for tabletop gaming products that are meant to be read and enjoyed aesthetically and not actually used. Um, you know, beautiful art, wonderful story, um, you know, compelling, uh, compelling ideas. And, um, and as you read them, you imagine what it would be like to play them, but you don't actually ever play them because it would fuck up your whole campaign or it would require starting something fresh or it's just too bizarre to figure out how to introduce. Um, but a lot of those products do really, really well. 
like for, you know, I mean, I think uh, Numenera, for instance, um, has been very, very successful, but I think its sales are disproportionate to the actual number of people that play Numenera. But I think a lot of people just think the setting is awesome and the art is awesome and they support it. Um, but, you know, you don't you don't run into um, at the local game store Numenera groups, for instance. No, although I, I, I do know uh, at least one uh, Catholic priest that had run Numenera uh, was his gaming group. But my issue with Numenera is when I, I, I got the book from the Kickstarter is that I my eyes, I just couldn't read the page. It was too much going on behind the print, and that's one of my biggest gripes. I actually had a friend of mine who uh, is, is uh, pretty good at manipulating PDFs to uh, remove the uh, offending art from behind my text on my PDF so I could actually get you know the worst the worst game i ever had in that regard was the old mayfair games chill rule book where they oh my god i threw that one out it was you you know what i'm talking about where the text was illegible like the graphic designer should have been fed to werewolves frankly oh my god yeah I, i i literally threw that book out and and i took out the old pace setter version of chill yeah i was like i can read this this is fine, and and this was bef- you know I'm I'm 51. I probably threw that book out when I was 40. I just couldn't keep it anymore. I was like, I, I can't read it. You know. And- okay, so you're you're about eight years older than me. I think that's why you also why you you, you uh, probably had trouble finding a cyberpunk group because the um you know it, the the cyberpunk genre hit its popularity just as I was at my peak um gaming. Okay. Uh, you know, college yeah. college years, yeah. Yeah, the closest we got to Cyberpunk was Rifts. And uh, I was happy with that because I wasn't the GM, so I got to play. But I was also the asshole that didn't want to play your Glitter Boy or any of that stuff or, you know, Dog Soldier. I always wanted to play, like, the Crazy or the, the Vagabond, which meant that I always got killed real quickly because I didn't have NBC armor. I digress. Yep, yep. I, I ran a short a short lived riffs campaign with a, I think it was like a glitter boy a juicer and a couple other characters and it just all went really really badly when they all murdered each other and I was like all right well good game guys yeah well, uh, listen well, uh, my one Gen Con that I went to which is probably I think ninety three or ninety four my 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 copy of riffs is actually signed by uh, Kevin. Sambita, Kevin Long, and a few others that were at the table at the time. So I cherish the book, and I love the setting. Uh, the, the system itself is is broken, but if you're a Palladium fan, you don't care about that. You just, you know, you fix at the table, I guess. That's right. Well, I, I ran Robotech recently, and I, I bought all of the um, Palladium Robotech supplements, but I then reskinned the whole thing into the uh, Artosorian's Mechton system. And um, oh, okay. re- rebuild all the mechs in Mechton, which is similar to the Cyberpunk system, and um, you know, and, and hack the heck out of it. But we had a we had a great time. So I, I it's kind of like we were saying, you know, the, the Palladium books I think are great for supplements and lore, um, but you know, I you'd, you'd really have to twist my arm to make me run the system itself. Oh yeah, I, I love the Palladium fantasy uh, RPGs setting. I love the races, the wolf, yeah. yep. spot on. Yeah, but the system itself is a, just a, a, a real bad house version of basic slash AD and D hobbled together by somebody who 
probably didn't know the rules fully when they initially did it. But yeah, exactly. Now, since we're talking about stuff from other publishers, Alex, what do you have coming up besides your uh, Game Mastery book? Oh, man, ton of product this year. Um, you know, starting in, uh, in May of last year, I began working on Autark full time. And, um, you know, that transition took a bit to get up to steam. Um, I had to go back and revise a bunch of older products that, um, you know, had, had been neglected. I had to catch up on some back issues of axioms, et cetera. But here's what we've got coming. We have um, Arbiter of Worlds, uh, which is my GMing book. Um, then uh, have partnered with Simon Forster, who did Book of Layers and who did all the maps for Layers and Encounters. And he, uh, he and I have, have uh, co-written an adventure called um, Ruined City of Siphondir, which is set in our Arn Empire setting. Um, nice. Courtney so, so, Camp. So, Simon does, by the way, Simon does great work. I, I have his releases. He's great. He, he packs a lot of gameplay into very little pages. So I'm looking forward to yes. seeing what you two you put together. Yes, he does. Um, then Courtney Campbell uh, has created a product uh, called Irie of the Dread Eye, which uh, is also set in the Aran Empire. Um, but, you know, it has sort of brought in his kind of um, maniacal gonzoness a little bit into the world. And I think it's going to be really flavorful and fun. Yeah, Courtney's um, always got some f- interesting stuff to put out. I've been following his stuff for years. Yep, yep. Um, then we have a new freelancer named Mike, um, uh, who hasn't decided what his official designer last name is going to be yet. Ah. I'm just calling him Mike um, in order to protect the innocent. But, uh, or, the, or, or the guilty. Or the guilty. But he's doing Sepulchre of the Sorceress Queen, um, which is another adventure set in the Aran Empire. Then we have Secrets of the Nether City, which is our mega dungeon, or kilo dungeon, really. Um, we have Capital of the Borderlands, which is a um, provincial gazetteer and city gazetteer. Uh, and then after those come out, there's going to be Aroxa Meraki's um, Almanac of Unusual Magic, which is a supplement that has all sorts of um, wacky new options for spellcasters. Like one of them is is actually um, Star Trek engineering as as a spellcasting, right? So it's like you know you're Spock and you're accidentally on a fantasy world and you're using your technology and it seems like magic stuff like that. So it's uh, that's going to be a super wacky fun book. Um, and then, you know, uh, in a longer time horizon, I'm, I'm working on a couple new games and um, exploring a, a revision of uh, Axe to bring Axe to a second edition. The game's been out eight years now, so it's probably about time. You know, Labyrinth Lord has had a second edition. The Stars Without Numbers had an edition. Dungeon Dragons has had an edition. So it feels plausible to, to do Axe 2.0 or, you know, Axe Legendary Edition or something. Nice. Yeah, I didn't realize it's been out for eight years already. Yeah, yeah, the core book came out in 2000, got kickstarted in 2011, and then we did, I've done one book a year since then. So Adventure Conquer King System, Player's Companion, um, Dwemer Mount, Domains at War, Sinister Stone of Saqqara, Layers and Encounters, Heroic Fantasy Handbook, and now Secrets of the Nether City. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm going from one product a year to like six this year. So it's 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 been a busy time. You ain't kidding, and I'm... And I'm looking back now, and I'm like, wow. Axe, eight years ago, because I've interviewed people on, on this podcast, and they'll be like, yeah, and I, I use this system. I, I don't remember what, 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 what which of the OSR RPGs I, I found it in, but it's like you flip over the body, and I'm like, I know exactly what he's talking about. 
I, I know exactly where you found it. You found it, Max, because he's talking exactly with the uh, re- re- recovering your your like you're near dead on the field, basically. Yes, um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's been kind of fun actually watching over the last six, seven years a bunch of ideas that we put into acts have now um, uh, circulated into other games, and some other game companies have used um, the Axe economics. Uh, as the foundation for their supplements. You know, I release everything I write under the open game license. Um, the only thing I restrict as um, product is specific to the R and Empire, which is, um, you know, m- my home campaign world that, you know, one day I will write a Tolkien style novel in. But everything nice. else is, is completely open. And, um, you know, I felt like given that I was myself writing a game based on, you know, uh, Cook and Moldvay and Menser that it would be absurd to then take the stance that other people shouldn't be able to do that on my own work. So it's just open it all up. Well, I, I think uh, the Axe Companion book, which allows you to not just have additional classes, but gives you a system where you can design additional, cl- I've, I've, additional classes. I've played with that with Swords and Wizardry. It works fine. It works like... Yep. Yep. So... Yeah, you just have to convert. You have to convert the um, the attack throws and saving throws over. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I regularly use sword and wizardry modules um, with axe. I use labyrinth lord, basic fantasy, lamentations of the flame princess. Like they're all very, very compatible. Second edition D and D is uh, compatible. It's not till you get to third edition, and then third edition everything stops being compatible. So. Well, you know, when I was younger, when we were playing AD and D two E, because Chewie had to be better than first edition, but we still played the first edition adventures. I was still pulling out Temple of Elemental Evil. I was and and, and running people through it. I was, you know, T one Tomb of Horrors, the the Giant series Slavers. I was still using the old adventures, and you know, one and two had some significant differences, almost as much as you know, basic to advanced did, but. It's nothing that, you know, a number here or a number there doesn't fix. You're right. Once you hit third edition, uh, it becomes a lot harder. I, I don't think you can convert fourth edition to any of the OSR games. I don't think there's No, I, I, I really tried because fourth edition came out right right just before Axe did. Um, and it, that's the only edition of D&D I've never run a campaign in. I've run a first, a second, a third, a third point five, and a fifth edition campaign. I've never run a fourth edition campaign. I just couldn't bring myself to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, friends I don't, know. don't let friends run fourth edition. Uh, well, yeah, and I don't know, I don't know five E well enough to run it, but I'm comfortable enough with it that I would be happy to be a player in a game of five E, because there's enough synergy, I think, between the old school rule sets and five E that my sensibilities won't fall apart. But my sensibilities, when I I, I bought four E, even when I wasn't gaming, I was still buying gaming material. And 4E was where I was so glad I found the OSR. Because <laughs> Same. 4E, 4E made no sense to me. And I, I, any, any 4E you know, fans out there, uh, God bless you. You find your system. Uh, it's not mine. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, I was the same. I mean, I own all the 4E books. I bought them out of loyalty. I, I even bought the D&D Essentials, you know, that's sort of the second wave of fourth edition. Um, uh, just because... Yeah, 4.25, uh, I guess, yeah. 4.25, yeah, just because, you know, I feel like, look, it's a small industry. Every consumer dollar helps. And I, you know, I want to make sure that, 
you know, game designers get paid and the market remains. But, um, you know, I, I just, I couldn't bring myself to, and I, I couldn't bring myself to play it. So I was glad, I was glad that the new direction they went for fifth edition. Um, I think it's funny that second edition Pathfinder looks like it's, it's sort of like their fourth edition. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, the whole the whole Pathfinder 2e. Well, when when I, I I look at that and I I've I've heard complaints from various third party publishers that they were blindsided by the announcement, but I don't think that Starfinder was the hit that they had expected or had hoped it would be. Maybe not expected. Maybe they had high hopes, but low expectations. But uh, it wasn't going to bring in the money. And the reason why a lot of these rule sets like D&D and Pathfinder, the big rule sets get rebooted is because you've pretty much, your markets all become owned by the third, you know, third party publishers. You're not getting third party publishers kickback. So you almost right. have to reboot to get new core books out there. Kind of right. like Mongoose uh, rebooting Traveler after, the, after they realized the OGL was good in getting support not probably good in getting more money to mongoose. Yep, yep. I mean, and, and also I think it's the fact that core rules tend to outsell any other product you're going to release. Like yeah. the Axe core rules has outsold um, my next three books put together uh, to give a sense of the scale. So, you know, to think about, okay, well, what would an Axe second edition do? For instance, I mean, it more or less would double uh, to triple uh, revenues for for a year as that game yeah. comes out. So, well, that's the whole thing too with these uh, community programs on drive through for the different uh, RPGs. Your the publishers now are, you know, the person who writes under the DMs Guild gets fifty percent of the sale price, and the publishers getting twenty percent. And RPG Now is getting 30%. But the publisher is getting 20% just for licensing their IP yep. under their, their program. And if you want to write under that, more, more power to you. But it's certainly a great deal for the publishers. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, you know, I, I, I looked into it. But, I, you know, at the end of the day, I felt like I wanted to keep control of all of my own brands. So. Yeah, I... I I understand that completely. That's it. It, you know, and I mean, I, like Savage Worlds uh, just released under the community program. Now, what I found surprising by that is that I think that Pinnacle is only keeping like maybe ten percent as opposed to the normal twenty, or was it maybe even five? They're giving more money to the actual third-party publishers than the other community programs are. But that's interesting. Now I wonder if that's because is Savage Worlds open game? Because maybe it's the case that they control no. the game engine. And so they if you want to use those third party products, you have to buy their rules. Well, here's the here's the thing with uh, uh Savage Worlds, as I understand it, with Pinnacle. If you are publishing on a fan site and you're distributing for free, uh you can you can do so. You don't have to license. Um and then they have a, a license that is, I guess, free for publishers to use, but your books will get reviewed. But now if you publish under the community program, you just have to like abide by their rules, but you can't use their settings. And a lot of stuff with Savage Worlds is 
the huge number of settings or uh, what they call it, plot point campaigns that are out there mm-hmm. that people might want to build off of, like Evernight and and Rippers, but you can't because those are locked down. Yeah. So it's it's a little weird, but you know, I I don't see why a company like Pinnacle couldn't invest the money in putting up their own storefront and saying, you know what, hey, publish your stuff on our site under this license and we'll give you 85%. We'll just keep 15. Right. Cut out, right. The, cut out the middleman. Does drive to really need to be the middleman for everybody? I know it's one-stop shopping and I, I don't complain because I do get referral monies from them or affiliate mm-hmm. monies, mm-hmm. but does it really have to be that way? If you are a publisher like Pinnacle, I think they're large enough. I, I think they would have been better served with their own storefront and they could have given more money to the third parties and kept more money for themselves. Like Steve Jackson does with its, uh, what is it, Warehouse 23? That, right. That, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just just throwing that out there. I, I, I've got no will will against drive through. They've done fine by me over the years as a as a blogger and uh, getting uh, review copies in the past. But I just don't see why a larger publisher would would necessarily, if they're going to do a program like that, you should have enough of a following where you could do that in your own backyard and cut out the middleman. Do you really need the middleman? Yeah, thing? yeah. I mean, I, it, it may be... It may be at this point the network effect of you know having everyone likes having their drive-through RPG files all in one place. You know, it may just be the network effect is so strong um, yeah. that uh, that it's hard to compete. I mean, I know that that for us, our sales primarily come from two channels: Kickstarter and and drive-through RPG, and everything else um, is more or less irrelevant. You know, like if every game store in the country, you know, was simultaneously destroyed by crazed story gamer activists um like it wouldn't impact sales very much for us but if drive through rpg and kickstarter went down um you know then i would be washing cars so yeah no i i understand that and that that does make sense i guess that's what even why like bundle of bundle of holding their wizard's cabinet links to drive through so anything it does yep so yeah i i i used to write for my website, The Escapist. He was one of our future writers for many years. So I've done a bunch of products projects with uh, with Alan. He's a great guy. Well, Alan... Uh, Alan Varney, on... who runs Bundle Holding. Yeah. yeah, he used to work on uh, Paranoia. And mm-hmm. I know he put... He, I read all his fiction uh, novels that he put out in the uh, Paranoia yep. setting. They, they, were, they were fun reads. He certainly has a quirky sense of humor, but it works well. It's, it's dry. He does. He does. So, yeah, he has a dry, he has a good dry sense of humor. Um, yeah, so he used to write a bunch of um, feature articles for the Escapist, and so did his friend uh, Greg Kostikian, who was the designer of um, uh, you know the Star Wars RPG D6 Star Wars RPG, and one of the designers of Paranoia, and also of uh, Price of Freedom, the uh, the ultra right wing anti communist RPG. I remember I remember that one. I didn't own that one, but uh, I you know I play tested. Uh... Uh, was it uh, Hill Sector Blues at West End uh-huh. Games in when they were in Manhattan? Yeah, you and you came in like in the from like the back of the building. I remember we were sitting on desks in their office to actually play test it. I still have my play test material in my paranoia box, 
And uh, I have a letter from Ken Rolston when I bought my paranoia box. I think I got it from them directly. I think I back in the day when you when you had to send your check in to order something. Right. Uh, right. Uh, I I didn't it didn't come with dice in the box and you know you you needed dice dice were gold back then you if you got dice in a game box it was expanding your dice collection it's not like yep. now where you can spend twenty dollars and get a pound of dice mailed to you by amazon and uh i got a letter uh and still remember this it was printed on dot matrix but ken wrote it uh he started out you know apologizing and then in character the computer broke in told me I was a traitor because the computer never makes any mistakes. And then goes back to, <laughs> goes, goes back to Ken's letter and he signed it. Needless to say, I never got dice, but I have a letter that is uh, irreplaceable. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, um, you know, it's funny when you think about, like, it, it would be difficult to imagine a small press tabletop game company today with full-time staff in an office in Manhattan. Um, you know, like what a, what a different world we operate in now. It's practically oh. inconceivable. Um, you know, or like the, the, the idea that a game like Advanced Squad Leader uh, sold 1 million copies. Like, I'm like, what happened to those 1 million people? Like, I would like to sell games to them because clearly you're very smart and 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 you like spreadsheets. And so you're yeah. my target market. Apparently so, because I'm one of those 1 million people and I bought it and I tried to figure it out. Uh, and that was over a couple of weeks in the summer spent in the Poconos. And uh, yeah, no, I, I could never figure that game out. I, it It couldn't happen. Yeah, it's a complex game, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, a bit, bit more than I was uh, willing to comprehend or, I guess, invest myself in at the time. Damn. Yeah. Wow. We, 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 we certainly covered a lot of ground in our little uh, hex crawl here. Yeah, yeah, we did. This is good. We, we uh, feel like we should get experience points for exploration. Uh, you know, if, if I could award it, I would, but as I'm a participant, I probably can't. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's, it. It sucks, but uh, so the, the Axe community is cheering spreadsheets in the background. Um, mm -hmm. We actually have a spreadsheets emoticon um, that we uh, we use in our server. Um, I think it's I think it's an ongoing joke, but <laughs> that's why. But you know, next Axe Two E is just going to be a story game. We're going to get rid of all the math, and it's just going to be tags and a D six. Oh, and then and the group votes on what happens. Yeah, the group. Yeah, the group votes. Uh, votes on what happens. Okay. Did we win the battle? Everyone votes yes. Oh, great. Okay. Okay. I'd like to find a magic sword behind that rock, please. <laughs> no, I. I uh, maybe, maybe, maybe the next time, I'll find a magic sword behind. I want it to be like flaming, but not hot. <laughs> Jay Davis oh. is like, I want Axe to to just be a spreadsheet. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be instead of a PDF with art, it's just going to be an Excel file. <laughs> oh God, help us! But for those of you listening at 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 home, we actually have a nicely uh, nicely filled room of live listeners, a live show, and they're making comments in the text channel, so they are amusing us. <laughs> the dungeon maps for Excel files. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That would be painful. 
Yes. We're going to do the dungeon maps. You know, and we're actually going to, you got to print them out in like the old dot matrix, you know, where you had to print everything out with like letters and make your maps and graphics that way. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. No. Oh man. Dot matrix printers. I remember getting that and I just thought I was the coolest kid in town. <laughs> on my like Commodore 64. Oh, see my Commodore 64. I never got a printer for, but my Coleco Adam, which was a ColecoVision with a digital audio tape drive, a basic computer thingy, and a dot... No, no, sorry. Uh, Daisy Wheel printer. My God, that thing was so fucking loud it would wake up the neighbors. Yep. yep. Holy shit. I don't think I really used it to, to do much computing of any sort. I just played ColecoVision games on it. My parents could have saved a couple of hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah. I had a ColecoVision, and um, and then later I had a Turbo Graphics, which was like an obscure console oh, from no, Japan. No, no, no. It wasn't obscure. It wasn't obscure. I had two friends that had it. They, oh my, Turbo Graphics sixteen, man. That was sixteen bit graphics before. That was arcade graphics for the time. Yeah, yeah. It was awesome. It was awesome. Um, and then and I had a Commodore sixty four. But for the first three years of the Commodore sixty four. I didn't have a tape drive, so I had actually no way of saving any files. So oh. I would just type into the screen and print, and then it was gone. <laughs> I was like a typewriter. Ouch. No, that sucks. I, I, no, I had mine with the uh, the floppy drive. And, of course, my friends were all making me copies of Ultima at the time. And I, I played this one rpg and god knows i still can't remember what it was called it actually came with props in the box so like if you were going into the dungeon and you had a certain room it would tell you like open envelope two and you would oh it, it was, so cool it was very cool the only problem is whenever i tried to cross the river to get to the other you know the larger expanse of the world the game would always fucking crash oh always crash and if you weren't around for the days of the early Apples and the early Commodores and, and and floppy drives. Crashed games weren't uncommon, but a game that crashed in the same fucking spot. Oh, my God. That was annoying. That was do an you, SSI game. Do you remember a game called um, The Adventure Construction Set? And it was a uh, it was like an RPG maker. Um, would have been late Commodore era, early PC era that let you create simple Ultima type games. I remember reading about it. And I think I read a review in one of the uh, computer game magazines back then. I never owned it, but I remember looking at a shelf at a, a I guess, uh, what was the software I said? It was above B Dalton's probably or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I just remember looking at that and going, I, I, I really would like this. And I, could, I never had the money to afford it. Yeah, I had a I had a pirated copy, and um and I to my horror the problem with the pirated copy is that uh, you could make the games, but then you couldn't actually play the games you made with the adventure construction set because I didn't have the keys to do that. And uh... like after investing fifty hours designing my first game with it, I discovered that, and that was my uh, that was my fourteen year old self's lesson uh, in don't pirate video games bad. Yeah, remember the uh, the wheels? Oh yeah, yep. To prevent yep. the pirating, it's like oh, Jesus. Yeah. Now I got it. 
What I remember most are boot disks, where you used to have to put a floppy disk in the PC to tell your PC not to load the operating system so that it could instead load the game because it couldn't have both going at the same time. Oh, God, yeah. Well, I I remember my first PC, which was a a custom... I had a custom-built SX33 because, you know, faster than like like a 20 or a 25. Oh, yeah. And I think my hard drive was 420 megabytes. I had to really pay extra for that. And it was, games took forever to load because it was five, six, seven, eight floppies. Yep. And when I got a CD drive, that was great. The only thing is it conflicted with my modem and I I couldn't use AOL unless I uploaded Geos. Oh man! Oh God! This is really—I'm having damaging flashbacks about my early computer days. Oh, it was—it was a totally different. Like I sound like—I I know I sound like that—that that, you know, grandpa who's talking about walking uphill to school both ways in the snow. But man, it really was walking uphill both ways in the snow to use a damn computer back then. It, it, it was. I mean, my my choices—if I wanted to log into something—I had two choices: an AOL. Which gave you five hours a month, or uh, the Fordham University Bulletin Board, which was run by Jesuits. So I, there wasn't anything yep. exciting happening at, at Fordham. And now with AOL, though, I my my problem got fixed when uh, I guess Windows went from I don't know whatever shitty version of Windows was probably like three point fixed a lot of outstanding issues. But uh, oh no! Actually, when when I got 3.0 Windows, it fixed the issues with DOS. DOS. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. But um, I learned a trick with AOL. Again, for you folks that don't know what limited internet is, think five hours in a month. You can't even grab your emails in that time. But if you went to there, like their members helping members section, members helping members was not timed. But if you were there and you left it, I forget from what section you had to leave it from, you had about a 50-50 chance of not kicking the timer back in. And you knew if the timer came back on or not. So when the timer didn't kick back in, now I could go all over AOL and read news stories and play shitty games. Yep. But, yeah, and then when they gave you 10 hours and then 20, you were like, it's heaven. I I didn't get internet access till I went to college, where we had Gopher and Lynx, which was um, pre-graphical web browsers to access the World Wide Web. Wow! And um and then the, and then I remember the first time I used Mosaic, which was the first graphical web browser, and I was like, "This is incredible! There's pictures on the internet." <laughs> it's like, hey, I can. I can download stuff off the yeah. internet. How the there's there's these groups you can go into and yep it'll yep. it'll take you ninety five minutes to download. God, a picture of a fucking cat, but it, it, you could do it. You and could do it. Was, yeah, set up set up your downloads. Go to bed. Wake up in the morning. You know, be like, oh, cool, I got this file. <laughs> It used up my entire hard drive. Okay. <laughs> well, well, that, yeah. Well, that, well, that was also like you know, a little bit later when, like, when I was playing EverQuest, it was we were still all on dial-up. I had friends that were installing second lines just so we could call one person. 
but you couldn't call everybody. Yep. Yep. And and, and then they uh, came out with the first expansion for EverQuest, which my computer, my uh, graphics card couldn't run. So I was about two months paying for a subscription that I couldn't use because the game updated to graphics that I couldn't push through until I bought a new graphics card. Oh, my God. You know, speaking of technology, one of the things I, I, I think about is that it was so much harder to organize a Dungeons and Dragons group before there were cell phones and the internet. Oh, like, God, yeah. If Jim didn't come to the session at seven, you're just like, where's Jim? I don't know. We have no way of getting in touch with him. Do you think yeah. he'll come? I don't know. <laughs> like, you know um, now if someone, if someone didn't remember where the session was, he had no way of finding out. Like, it was just, you had to, you know, you had to be like a logistics genius to get eight people in the same location at the same time. Yeah. I mean, we could do that in uh, high school and college because it was like, it was basically, oh, we got a free day, free uh, day to game. And my house was the default house because my mother was always very, very nice and would make the iced tea and, you know, finger sandwiches or whatever. So her whole thought was, I'd rather have them here playing D&D &D and, and, and breaking the dining room furniture in their excitement as they bounce around too much and chairs slowly sink to the floor. Then have them outside getting in trouble. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That was that was my my parents' attitude as well with regard to um, role playing games. Like, you know, our our son's a little weird, but at least he's not off doing drugs and whatnot. Exactly, so. exactly. Wow. Well, Alex, I I I think we've now yep officially. It's the longest episode yet. Not awesome. a, and and. And, and we we could keep doing this, man. We'll probably have to do this again just because it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. I'm, I'd be happy to come back anytime you've got a slot. Ah, Pex is listening, and I'm sure Pex is already like going, oh, okay, let me get the uh, spreadsheet out. And right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pex should really play Axe with the way he likes spreadsheets. No, he's, he's good at it. And uh, I, I have learned I am not good at spreadsheets because I can look at a spreadsheet and it doesn't tell me shit i mean it tells me stuff but i don't visualize it so now i have like one of those like uh, year-long daily planner books that you put in your pocket and i'm like now i can write out all this stuff and holy shit i'm busy didn't seem like it until i actually wrote it out but yeah pex pex is uh if i am if i if, if chaotic evil is disorganized that would be me pex is awful good there you somehow, go. somehow in the middle, we're like true neutral. Yep, yep. But uh, Alex, thank you very much for joining. Everybody that's listening live, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate. It. I've been reading the comments as we've been doing this, and I, as my niece has been known to tell me, Uncle, how can you not laugh at certain stuff? I was a cop for twenty years. I've learned to keep laughter in when I need to. But man, you guys were fucking hilarious. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me. Dude, thank you for joining. I really, really appreciate it. Home run. Um, all right, folks. We're going to, on that note, we're going to bid the all adieu. As always, uh, God bless. Roll your dice well. And I will talk with you all tomorrow, assuming that, you know, Craig Bot lets me leave this time. Let's see. <laughs>